and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights. This episode is about the controversial topic of vaccine passports or immunity passports or vaccine certificates, whatever you want to call them. And we will be thinking about some of the ethical and human rights issues arising from them. And to do that, I've got two excellent guests. Judith Breno de Mesquita, who is the co-deputy director of the Human Rights Centre and a lecturer in international human rights law at the University of Essex, and Professor Wayne Martin, who is also at the University of Essex. He's a professor of philosophy and he runs the Essex Autonomy Project, a research and public policy initiative which aims to clarify the ideal of self-determination. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London. Goldsmiths LLB programmes are qualifying law degrees, your first step towards becoming a solicitor or a barrister in England and Wales. You'll develop the academic knowledge and professional skills to start a dynamic legal career. If you want to find show notes or help support the podcast and make it sustainable, you can go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. So thank you so much, um, Jude and, and Wayne, for coming on the podcast. Um, th- this issue of vaccination passports, vaccination certificates, immunity certificates, immunity passports, whatever we're going to call them, and we'll talk about the definitions in a minute, is really um, getting people's attention, not just in the UK, but around the world. And I thought it w- a really good place to start is exactly there. What are we talking about when we talk about vaccine, whatever you want to call them? Um, and, and Jude, I just wanted to start with you to ask about the international dimension um, right before we move into specifically what's being discussed here in the UK. Thank you so much, Adam. Um, and at the international level, there's a kind of mishmash of existing and, and new practice So it all dates back some time um, and what we see is the sort of first and the the main use of vaccine certificates worldwide has been in the context of yellow fever um, and that requires, for international travel at any rate, and that requires people travelling in and out of certain countries or certain areas within certain countries to have um, the yellow card, the yellow fever yellow card. Um, and that is a requirement which is authorised under the international health regulations, which are the uh, primary international instrument to deal with uh, the international threat of infectious diseases. Now, in the wake of COVID-19, uh, we've seen a whole sort of plethora of different types of um, vaccination or immunity uh, status um, discussions and, and, and examples popping up in different countries and internationally. Um, And amongst some of those are the following. So uh, Israel has been the first country uh, to roll out the green pass, basically. So it covers vaccine uh, status as well as um, and and people can have a certificate um, and those who also have presumed immunity. And that's been used over the last month to grant people access to uh, certain religious and social um, places. and people who don't have um, the the certificate aren't uh, are, are not allowed to go there. Um, at the same time, there's other proposals uh, which are being made in different countries, in the United States, in France, in the European Union. And when Wayne's going to come on and talk in a moment about the UK, um, coupled with that, there are a range of uh, specific initiatives which are being developed, uh, which are a bit more like the yellow fever certificate, which are much more focused at international. Uh, travel uh, with a number of different countries uh, across Europe in particular um, announcing um, new measures uh, to for example to to waiver quarantine restrictions for travelers who who can show um, proof of uh, of vaccination um, or without testing testing requirements in the case of some countries like um, like Cyprus for example. Um, and also we find some airlines like Qantas, for example, um, who may be introducing requirements for people to have vaccine uh, certificates uh, to board their flights. Um, and I'm going to at this point hand over to, to Wayne. 
So, Wayne, do you want to tell us about the what's being proposed here um, in the UK? Yeah, well, I think that we're still trying to figure that out is the truth of the matter. Um, the key thing that's sparked a lot of discussion recently was the uh, government's roadmap for reopening. Um, and I think it's paragraph 130 and 131 in that published version of that um, talks about these CSCs, COVID status certifications. Um, and in particular, um, about the possibility of domestic uses of those as an instrument for accelerating the reopening of the economy. Particularly, I think what they had in mind, although this is more reading between the lines, in the kind of uh, entertainment industries, you know, pubs and dance halls and theaters um, and so on. Um, and they don't take a stand on them in the roadmap. It's one of several things in the roadmap for uh, where, where there's a call for further uh, study. And that further study is underway right now. My understanding is cabinet office has really been leading um, on that. And as you no doubt have noticed, there's been a lot of sort of civil society discussion and debate uh, around that. Now, um, my sense in sort of tracking this is that actually quite a lot of that debate has been based on some mistakes. And there, there are three in particular um, that I would flag here. I mean, one really is about nomenclature. That when people first started talking about this sort of stuff in 2020, there was for a while people were talking about immunity passports. And first of all, I think that that name is ter a terrible idea. I mean, the, the idea that you could have a issue passports that say you're immune. I mean, that's just a terribly dangerous thing to do because, you know, we, you never know that you're immune. Being vaccinated does not make you immune. Um, you could still get it. And so that was a bad name for it. And then more recently, then there's been talk about vaccination passports, I guess partly on this precedent of the yellow fever um, sort of history there. Uh, so you might get a passport that says you're you're vaccinated. But I think it's important. That's not what is being proposed here, I think, in the roadmap to recovery and reopening. Um, my, from the, I mean, I think they're still making it up and trying to figure out what the options are. But I think the idea there, COVID certification, uh, COVID status certification would be to say, to certify that, look, I have a low risk uh, for COVID. And there are various ways I might get that kind of green status. It might be because I've now been fully vaccinated. It might be because I've been tested in the last 72 hours. It might be because I've recently recovered from COVID and I've got antibodies um, and so on. So there are a number of different sort of pathways uh, that one might take. So they're not really vaccine. Maybe we could call them COVID passports, maybe would be a better, a better name. Um, so that's one sort of misunderstanding. And actually, some of our initial debates, I feel like we were talking at cross purposes. So the second point here, a lot of the debate has been about whether to introduce these certifications. Um, and people, you know, have been arguing about that. I think we have to recognize to a very considerable extent, we already have them, right? Um, you know, we have a, somebody who's in our bubble who just uh, came into the UK from abroad, and she had to prove that she had had a test, that she was in that way proving she was a low COVID risk. Um, so we've already got them. The government has a database, rightly, I think, of everybody who's been vaccinated and test results are part of the public record. So the question to me is not so much about whether to introduce them, but what are the permissible uses of them? It's not about whether we're going to have them or not. We've got them. Uh, and the police have access to this information um, already. So the question is, what are the appropriate um, the appropriate uses um, of them? And then finally, I think, although it's helpful, maybe it's kind of legally neat to distinguish between domestic and international uses. In fact, this is an area where these two things bleed into one another. It's not like showing my regular passport at the border, which I then put away until the next time I travel internationally. If I come across the border internationally with my low-risk COVID certification, you know, the I have to take another test two days later, eight days later. The police might come to my door and ask to see that the results of these tests. So, in fact, what we're finding is the international and the domestic 
uses of these kinds of instruments really bleed into one another. So anyway, that's sort of where we are. I think that uh, some decisions are being made, I expect, this week, really, about whether the government's going to endorse uh, certain kinds of uses of these. So that's the, the debate that's really live here domestically. I'm just going to read from the um, the bit of the um, roadmap, the government's roadmap, which refers to COVID status certification. Um, COVID status certification involved using testing or vaccination data to confirm in different settings that people have a lower risk of transmitting COVID-19 to others. The government will review whether COVID status certification could play a role in re reopening our society, reducing restrictions on social contact and improving safety. This will include assessing to what extent certification would be effective in reducing risk and the potential uses to enable access to settings or relaxation of, of, of COVID secure mitigations. Um, government will consider the ethical equalities, privacy, legal and operational aspects of this approach and what limits, if any, should be placed on organizations using certification. So Jude, should we dive into some of those ethical issues. Um, we can call them rights issues, we can call them ethical issues, whatever we call them, they, they are issues which we really need to resolve because one, I think as Wayne says, one, we've got the data already. I think we've definitely got the data on vaccinations. I, I would query whether we've got a full data set on who's had the virus and who has antibodies. I think we probably have only got a, a limited data set on that. Um, what do you want to start with? What are the potential benefits from an ethical legal perspective? Um, and then we'll talk about the potential costs. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I think before we even get to the ethics, we need to also quickly flag public health questions around uh, these certificates as well. Uh, you can't you can't disentangle the two really. Um, so so there are. A range of public health unknowns uh, which are still um, important to consider. So firstly, when it comes to um, vaccination, although we know now that um, there's much lower risk to individuals um, who've been vaccinated of catching COVID or having severe COVID, uh, there's still a lot of uncertainty around how effective the vaccines are at preventing transmission. Uh, there are some quite encouraging early studies in relation to some of the vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, but it's still very early stages and those studies don't necessarily apply across to all vaccines. Um, there's other unknowns as well. So when it comes to, um, for example, immunity, somebody's had, had COVID, we don't know very clearly how long people are, are immune from COVID or when they might be at risk of, of picking it up again and how how that would be factored in. Um, and then when it comes to testing, that's, an, that's another unknown. Uh, so, uh, you know, with a, with a degree of um, testing error, uh, false, false negatives and false positives. Um, so there are risks involved in um, all of these different um, elements of the, uh, of the certificate uh, in terms of public health, um, the strength of the public health um, evidence upon which they are based. So let, let's turn to some of the ethical questions. Well, um, you know, there are arguments in favour of these, uh, of, of the certificates of the passports. Um, and, and those are to do with, um, you know, trying to ease some of the restrictions that we've had on society, at least for some people. Uh, so the argument basically goes that, that if you, um, leaving aside all those public health concerns, which, which we can't in practice leave aside, but um, you know, at the theoretical level, if you've had um, a vaccine, if you've had COVID, if you haven't had a test, you know, if you are probably lower risk um, in terms of your own um, your own likelihood of catching COVID, but also you you may well be lower risk at lower risk of transmitting it as well. So that being said, the idea is that we could ease some restrictions on people um, to go back to doing some of the things that they were able to do economically, socially before the pandemic hit us. And that's not just about people's social lives. It's also about supporting people to go back, um, as, as Wayne alluded to earlier, to important responsibilities that they may have uh, towards um, caring for people, uh, whether that's people within their own families or, or, or through jobs and so on and so forth. So it's 
the idea is that we might start to put back some of those pieces, those, that sort of fabric of our community, which has been um, so interrupted over the past year. One question to ask about that, I guess a point of clarification is, the benefits will very much depend on the use to which vaccine passports are put. So one proposal is that vaccine, whatever we call the immunity passports, let's call it, would be used in care homes for, for staff in care homes where they're working with the highest risk group from COVID, albeit people who are themselves vaccinated, which raises a, another question, but the highest risk group probably still, even if everyone's vaccinated, is, is people over 80 um, with potential underlying health conditions. So it, there, the, the benefit is quite neat in the sense of you've got people in close contact in indoor spaces with people who are very vulnerable. Um, so you can kind of track the benefit quite cl clearly. When you get to say a football match or a big outdoor sporting event um, or any outdoor event, the benefit becomes less clear because it's you're in, you're with people who are less at risk and you are yourself because you're outdoors less at risk of transmission. And, and does that feed into the benefit the, the benefit calculation? Um, I mean, I think that uh, clearly when you've got an outdoor event, there's lower risk of transmission. Um, I don't think we can necessarily assume that all those people who might be attending a larger event um, or in a restaurant or in a workplace are, are themselves low risk, however. Um, so some of them might still be extremely high risk. And as, as we also know, people who aren't even considered to be high risk might still um, have very serious health, health consequences. Um, one, one thing I did want to add in as well is that um, the World Health Organization, who I think you know we, we need to look to their, to their guidance um, in, in all the measures which, uh, which are being taken in relation to COVID-19, they have, um, for the time being, they have advised against the use of both um, immunity passports, want of a better word, and also um, uh, vaccination passports for international travel based on both ethical and um, public health scientific evidential um, criteria. Um, Wayne, I just wanted to ask you, have you got anything to add to the benefits? And do you want to start talking about the potential costs? Yeah, well, just to chip in on the benefits first. I mean, one uh, place that I think we should look is what's happened just in the last few weeks around visitors to care homes. Uh, so, and I'm sure you know, the Joint Committee on Human Rights wrote to the government a few weeks ago um, with grave concerns about, you know, Article 8, uh, European Convention on Human Rights, Article 8, you know, privacy and family life concerns about blanket bans on visitors to care homes. Um, you know, we all work in a human rights context. We're used to this idea of a proportionality test. And I think one of the things that people are finding difficult is, you know, when the risks are so high, almost nothing seems disproportionate as a response. So people take very, very extreme measures with profound impact on, on civil liberties and human rights. And it's like, well, look, it's an emergency. We have to do that. I think that's one of the big issues. I thought that the Joint Committee's letter was very helpful on that. They said, and one of the things we know from the discipline of thinking from human rights is, well, look, is there a less restrictive alternative? Is there really a rational relationship between the policy that's being proposed and what exactly is the objective here? Anyway, these are the kinds of critical questions that get asked from a human rights perspective. And then what's happened, I mean, the government rebuffed that letter from the joint committee, but policy has changed. And now there is increased visitation um, to, uh, to, to care homes. And those Article 8 rights are, being, are getting better respect than they were just a fortnight uh, ago. And how has that been possible? It's been partly through COVID status certification, right? It, in order to visit there, the kind of at least the main way in is to get a test and there in that way to be certified as a low risk. Of course, that's not going to give me a free pass. I'm still going to need PPE and so on. But that has been a tool for improving the lives of a lot of people who've been profoundly impacted 
by the pandemic, and it's also improved the human rights situation in Cairns. So that's a win using this something like this um, as a tool. I would point to that as a, a kind of a really good example of the way. And it's important there. I think it's it's crucial. Different care homes are handling this in different ways. You know, you should also be looking for alternatives. If for some reason somebody doesn't want to get tested, if they've got real concerns about that, is there another way? Can we have garden visits or something? Or is there some modification? These are the kinds of arrangements that can be can be looked for. So anyway, that's, that w- I would point to as an example of not just a permissible, but a laudable way of using something like this certification to improve people's lives and improve respect for human rights. But okay, let's talk costs. Um, and there are certainly um, a, a lot of things that we um, we need to be um, concerned about here. Um, so I'll just go through a few of them. And then Jude, you uh, both of you could kind of chip in. I mean, one of them that we need to think about is the possibility of coercion. Um, you do hear people talking about that. I think we have a uh, a long sort of legal tradition in this country that we don't coerce competent people to have any kind of medical treatment over their objections. I mean, there are some controversial exceptions to that around, you know, coercive mental health and so on, but it's a very, you know, deeply seated uh, principle of law in this country. And I think there's no appetite for you know, mandating vaccines. But there's a certain point where incentivizing you know, if you raise the incentives high enough, incentivizing starts to edge over into coercion. And if, if I can't get into the supermarket to get my groceries, you know, unless I'm vaccinated, you know, you're now talking about a kind of de facto. So that's one thing. We have to think about the exact sort of nature of these, the uses of these uh, measures to think about whether we're edging into something that uh, appro- approximates um, coercion. Secondly, I think we need to be concerned about whether these measures actually fulfill their intended function. I mean, I talked earlier about the danger of calling them immunity passports. Don't give anybody anything that says you're immune because you're going to just drop your guard. And then if you add alcohol into that mix at the pub or the dance hall or whatever, that's just a public health disaster. And it's really important here to remember vaccines are not 100 percent effective. Um, and even the ones that have very high effectiveness, they're really effective at preventing death and hospitalization, but there's a significant number of people who still contract the disease, um, even with the vaccination. Tests, we know, they have false positives, they have false negatives. So there's a, re- there's a question here, and I think here is where you know, the government review really needs to produce some evidence that this is going to be uh, an effective strategy. They want to use it. Um, to open up the economy, to, to make it possible for people to do things they couldn't otherwise do. And that's important. That has all kinds of economic and mental health benefits if we can, if we can do that. But, you know, if you do that, if you would have a large enough dance hall there with a bunch of people with their green certificates, um, they're all vaccinated or tested. Some of those people are still going to have COVID and it does not take very many of them to make a super spreader event uh, out of that. So there's a real question there to me about um, effectiveness. And then I think the third thing I would flag here, at least this is these are my kind of top three, you know, the, the third thing is really about who's being disadvantaged by this. Um, the, you know, let's, I mean, a lot of the, the, the talk about this so far has been about a digital tool, an app on your phone. I mean, I'm sure, you know, we, we all have apps on our phones, but not everybody does. And it has to be, you know, a phone that, that's, you know, capable of supporting. You need a, maybe a continuous internet connection. Just not everybody has that. So what about the people who don't have um, access to that? Or to mention one other group, you know, there, there is a group in um, our society, it's a, it's a very sociologically interesting group, who don't want any government man, you know, sanctioned jab in their arm or swab up their nose. They tend to be people who have had a bad experience one way or another with government power. Maybe they have psychotic illness or maybe they're the kind of people who've been singled out for stop and search or whatever. 
And they're just very skeptical about um, all of this. And so they're going to be the people who will be, you know, disproportionately um, impacted upon this. That doesn't mean you don't do it. Absolutely. But that it, to me, you know, uh, you can maybe tell from my accent from an American, that's strict scrutiny, the American principle of strict scrutiny. As soon as you start having a disproportionate impact upon people who are already disadvantaged in your society, you better get out the magnifying glass to make sure it passes a, a really robust proportionality test. Um, well, there's some super interesting issues uh, arising there. Jude, do you want to pick yeah, up on I do, anything I do. that Wayne just said? It's kind of along the same line, but looking at it perhaps in a slightly different way. So we, we, we may be creating a new source of inequality. I mean, is it a prohibited ground under international law, vaccine status? Um, you know, how does that relate to existing um, recognised grounds um, of prohibition for prohibiting discrimination and, and inequalities. Well, certainly uh, um, under the international instruments, the UN instruments, health status is is perhaps one ground uh, which is closely related to vaccination status. Adam, you may want to talk a bit more about the European Convention's uh, instrument, which I'm personally less familiar with. But, but there are other uh, interesting ways that this plays out as well, um, you know, irrespective of, of that one, uh, that, that, that question. Uh, so, so what we find from recent um, surveys, including by the ONS, is that um, this hesitancy, that the hesitancy for vaccine uptake um, tends to uh, be along the lines of existing inequalities. So... For example, there's a much higher rate of uh, vaccine hesitancy among black and black British communities than among white communities. Um, I mean, it's a lot higher. I think it's 44% compared to around uh, compared to around 6%. Um, likewise, um, in most deprived areas, there's 16% of people report being vaccine hesitant compared to 7% in least deprived areas. So. Um, I think one of the questions that is raised is if we're having this quite co coercive approach where people's uh, freedoms are basically determined uh, by uh, by whether or not they're going to have a vaccine or be you know, have tests and so on and so forth, is that you risk um, disenfranchising further um, already marginalised groups. Um, so they may be excluded or you may be disproportionately applying coercion to certain groups. And for me, that's a really significant uh, concern with the COVID status certification. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. I mean, just, just thinking about that last point, we, we've sort of had this in a way with, with the face coverings um, requirements that we've had in England. And it's not the same, but there are similar issues arising. Um, and, and originally there was there was the idea, well, everybody that goes into shops will, will require some sort of face covering. And obviously that gives rise to problems of disability discrimination. You can't, there are certain people who for various reasons, whether mental health reasons or physical health reasons cannot cover their face. So you exempt them. But then if you exempt them, who are the gatekeepers? Who is who is policing the exemption? Who, you know, what what is it going to be some officious security guard with no disability awareness um, who's going to be um, harassing somebody coming in the store with no face covering saying, well, what, what's your reason? And the person not wanting to unsurprisingly reveal their reason in the end, what the government did was they put in place the system. It's imperfect. Arguably, it's a public health response, which makes a difference in enclosed spaces. And everybody has to deal with it. And particularly the, the shop owners, the um, business owners, they just have to deal with it. Um, and we've got used to it. But, you know, do you think there's an analogy there? Do you think we've learned anything from the way that's been managed? 
I think it's really hard for them to deal with it is the truth of the matter. I think um, the it's a tremendous it's, it's really an almost unreasonable burden to have placed on small shop owners. What are you supposed to do if you have a small shop in the high street um, and somebody turns up and they're not wearing a mask? It's just an incredibly difficult position. We're asking, you know, these frontline workers to effectively police this regulation without any of the tools of policing. Uh, the So the, the idea that it's a requirement, and it has these kind of ill-defined exceptions, um, the, I'm not sure we have gotten used to it, and I'm not sure it's really, it's really working. I mean, I, I, I read that in Israel, um, the, that this weekend was the first weekend that, that clubs and, and bars were opened. And the, the report I read was that they weren't enforcing the green passport, even though it was law, because they hadn't been given guidance from the government to to do that. Um, and obviously, that that's a sort of procedural, you know, problem, a, sort of stru- a mini structural problem. But you can see the wider issue of will will shops and restaurants just decide it's just not worth it yeah. because um, because it's too uncomfortable a situation to put themselves in with potential customers to to do this. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a couple of things I wanted to mention. One, actually, which gets back to my previous point, which is that there's, you know, particularly when we look at how the disparities um, play out, there there are arguably better ways rather than coercive ways of trying to get people to take up vaccines. I mean, many people have, you know, particular reasons why why they, they haven't taken up a vaccine. And sometimes, you know, you might actually achieve the same result through talking to people through promoting public health information um, and having effective strategies and community engagement uh, to achieve the same ends without having a sort of exclusionary and restrictive approach. I think when it comes down to um, asking a whole range of different uh, organisations and businesses to enforce. I mean, it's it's difficult to project, but you know, we we've, we've seen a process over time where people do wear masks more and more. Um, you know, and compliance has generally improved. Um, but if you're relying on that as the main, if you're relying on the enforcement of you know all the shopkeepers or all the restaurant or bar owners as the main sort of defence, um, you know, it, it, it's going to be difficult. It's it's there are. Uh, I think people, you know, people will have conflicts of interest, economic conflicts of interest between their own business um, and, uh, yeah. you know, enforcing the regulations very, very strictly. Not just economic conflicts. But, I mean, I, I had a, a message quite recently from someone who runs a large sort of arts conglomerate, I guess, who was saying, well, they're very worried that the kinds of people that they already do not get in enough to their venues will be discouraged. You know, people who, the people that Wayne discussed, people who have had issues with authorities before because they are um, discriminated against generally are the very same people who are less likely to get the vaccine, in which case they will become even less, um, even less likely to attend these venues. And the venues might reasonably say, well, it's not, um, it's, we've got an ethical reason not to enforce this. It's very, very difficult. So Wayne, you wanted to come in. Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, I, I should say, I didn't say this before, I'm not committed one way or another on, on this. I mean, we're flagging a lot of the concerns, but I think it's also, we do need to recognize that the closed down economy has huge costs and not just economic costs. It has huge mental health costs uh, among along with, every, along with everything else. And so, you know, some of these same people who are potentially disadvantaged, if you can figure out a way to do it right so that they can then, you know, enjoy some of these venues um, that they were maybe relying on before. I mean, over the years, I've been to a number of these sort of events in, in London, you know, uh, poetry groups for people with, uh, you know, that are really developed by people with disabilities, for people with disabilities, you know, uh, support groups and so on. If you can figure out, all of those things have gone offline with huge mental health consequences. If we can figure out a way to get those back, there's potentially enormous benefits, but we do have to think about the costs. And actually one cost that I want to flag here, we haven't talked about so far, is who pays, right? There's going to be, there's a significant cost associated with this whole initiative. And actually at several different levels, first of all, there's the software development or whatever um, it's going to be. Somebody's going to have to pay uh, 
for that. There's going to be actually probably some physical infrastructure. Uh, I don't know if you know how it actually works in Israel, but the, some of the models I've seen, you know, you're going to have scanners or whatever that you would have to show your, your QR code to. So there's physical infrastructure there. And then also I just go back to the point where not talking about vaccine passports. One of, it's very important. I can also get my green through a test, but tests are expensive. You know, who's going to pay for all these tests? We're making them free for certain kind of contexts in the reopening of the schools. Are we going to do that here? Anyway, these are huge cost implications that need to be. Otherwise, you really it goes back to Jude's point about inequality. You've got this instrument that is just really exacerbating inequality. I mean, there's also a question which uh, is about when this is going to be introduced in a way. So if it was introduced now, um, there would be a sort of age-related issue where younger people um, are, are going to find it more difficult to access certain facilities. Um, of course, people can maybe get hold of tests and so on and so forth, but it's a bit more complicated than the just having the vaccine certificate. Um if we introduce it when everybody has had the option of had it having a vaccine, and we do know the uptake is quite high, it's very high, um, then there's a question about sort of necessity of this type of measure. Because if we've got to a stage where so many people have been vaccinated, are, are we do we already then have this sort of herd immunity? And is the scheme at that point um, going to fulfil sort of pressing public health need? Uh, there's also questions in terms of inequalities to do with whether there would be exemptions uh, for people who aren't able to receive vaccines uh, for, for whatever reason. So people who are pregnant who mostly are not recommended, for example. Um, but, but my understanding is that these, these are issues which are under consideration anyway. Well, they would have to be exempt. I mean, you would have to, under disability, under the Equality Act, have some sort of exemption scheme for disabled people. Um, sorry, for people whose whose health conditions re uh, re remove them from being able to get a vaccine. But I think you'd also have to have an exemption for at the moment for women who were pregnant or planning to get pregnant, because as, as I, last time I looked, they're not recommended to take the vaccine in England, at least. Um, but, but I think they, they would, you know, you would you would have to do it in such a way that they would not have any there'll be no difference in access to services um just one question I, I was going to ask is it's all very well saying well the government should or shouldn't impose a scheme but ultimately this is going to happen private businesses are going to do this anyway i mean when i went to university in, in the states i had to get an mmr vaccine before i started my lectures i mean i literally had to go to the university clinic and get the vaccines so i could go to my first lecture and, and obviously this stuff does happen um, in private society now government um, Wayne has a choice here they can either permit that with conditions or they can ban it but they can't do nothing because if they do nothing then you're in the worst of all possible worlds yeah I agree I, um, I'm increasingly of the view that Parliament is going to have to do something um, on this um, because you know as I said at the beginning we've to a very considerable extent already got this. Um, right now, we are uh, the the access to the relevant databases is pretty robustly pre restricted. Um, you know, the the organizations like the police and the NHS they're not perfect by any means, as we know, in managing managing data. But there are robust procedures in place and recourse and so on. Um, and we have to decide whether we're going to broaden access uh, to the, those databases. Point of fact, I don't think the police have access to the vaccination data. I think the police have access to test, test and trace, um, but they don't have access, as far as I can see from the law, to vaccination. So they would need to be given access if there's going to be enforcement of these, um, you know, if, if, if someone's forged a passport or a, a shop owner has failed to comply with the requirements to um, to allow people in, you know, only with vaccine passports. The police would need to have th that data, but they don't now. I mean, you mentioned that being a student in the States, but, um, you know, Pimlico plumbers and so on has said they want a fully vaccinated workforce. It's in their business interest to be able to advertise that. Care UK, which is one of the largest employers of care home staff, 
Uh, they've also liked to, and then, okay, well, what are the permissible and impermissible ways of doing that? Can you do that? Can you require all of your, could you fire somebody who doesn't uh, agree to be vaccinated? Uh, could you make it a, a new entry requirement? I mean, these are issues where there's a real need for um, guidance. So I think we need, I think it's, you know, it's good that this is on the table and that we now have an opportunity to really try to build a democratic consensus around it and subject it to, you know, some of the, this kind of human rights scrutiny. If I can just add in something on the pregnant women um, part, I think you're right. If you were talking about a vaccine passport as your ticket to the exercise of your fundamental rights and freedoms, then the pregnant women case would be a real problem. But I think that that's not what we've got here, because if I'm, it, it, you know, I'm not a pregnant woman. If one is a pregnant woman, then um, one could be tested 72 hours in advance and be a care home, a visitor to a care home, for example. So there are other routes in to the green status, that I think, under the models that are being contemplated. So just to, to sum up, I'm going to put you both on the spot and ask you where where you would stand on this issue at the moment um, and, and feel free to say something fudgy <laughs> um, because this is a difficult issue. But Jude, wh where do you think um, we should go from a public health perspective with this idea? Um, I think that it's not a, um, a silver bullet. <laughs> I, think, um, I think over the course of the pandemic, um, we've sort of in a way, um, being a bit dazed um, or being a bit sort of quite enthusiastic about some of the government's been quite enthusiastic about different technical solutions to try and lift us out of the, the um, difficult situation that we're in. Um, I think they have a, a role to play. I think this probably has a role to play as well. Uh, but <laughs> uh, because of the public health limitations, um, I think that it's still quite early to know exactly uh, where you know how useful this is going to be as a public health measure um, I think that we need to be careful not to fall back uh, so quickly as we have done I think a lot over the pandemic on measures which are restrictive um, and applied coercively um, I think where one of the shortcomings that we faced across the pandemic is a lack of participation and lack of community engagement, and particularly with those vulnerable and marginalised groups who've been most at risk of COVID. And those um, are some of the groups here, which are perhaps the ones which would be most affected by this, this new measure. So we still need to ensure that any um, move forwards to open up society, engages properly, um, encourages people to to take up vaccination, that we don't just, um, uh, you know, again, disadvantage and clamp down on, on at-risk communities. We, have, we haven't talked much about privacy, but that's obviously been another concern that people have had. I think in many countries, there's very large concerns about the sharing of data. I think with the NHS app, which is proposed as a as a, to be used i think that's quite a, a secure system uh, but there are questions i think in the longer term about um you know if, if people individuals are getting access to people's data um which is part of the nature of this really is you have to share your data with people to gain access to certain venues or to work or so on and so forth that opens up your data to be your pub your own health data to be seen by individuals and so there are there are there are risks in that context Wayne where, where have you come down on this yeah well it's funny this is turnabout I was I was leaning on uh, I was pressing one member of our team who's a human rights lawyer to sort of come to a conclusion I says time is now you know time's running out we've got to take a stand and he said oh, I still don't know I said well which way are you leaning he says, I'm leaning both ways. <laughs> the, uh, so maybe I, to a certain extent, I'm leaning, I'm leaning both ways still on this. But I guess I, I would offer three uh, sort of provisional uh, conclusions at this point. I mean, one, I think we've got to decide what our overall policy objective is with respect to COVID 
moving forward. I mean, you guys are lawyers, you know, if you're exercising strict scrutiny or you're applying proportionality tests, the first question is, what is the aim that these measures are pursuing? And I think different democratic societies now are going different ways on this. You know, Australia and New Zealand are really going for a COVID-free nation, zero COVID. Um, other places are saying, we can't do that. We're going to have COVID. We got to mitigate the risks and and learn to live with it. But that's a question that as a democratic society, we've got to face up to. What's the, what, what is the the objective here in terms of the moving forward now in our vaccinated um, world. And then I think that a lot of things really follow from the decision you make about that, including having to raise this hard question about what would be an acceptable level of death um, on, you know, going forward with COVID. These are very hard questions to ask, but unless you start to ask them, you can't really calibrate uh, these questions about the means. So anyway, that's the first observation. I think we need to think hard about what the overarching um, policy objective is. My second one is I'll go out on a limb. I think there are permissible uses. I'm sorry, I'm p putting this point carefully. I think there are permissible uses of COVID status certifications. And I would point to their use um, in, vi in facilitating visitors to care homes, to people to exercise their Article 8 um, rights is one example of that, especially where it's accompanied by alternative routes to visitation um, for those who, for one reason or another, can't can't use them. And then the final point I would put is really just a burden shifting point. I think anybody who wants to use these sorts of measures needs to face up to the fact that there are losers as well as winners when we roll them out. And so, and many of those losers are people who are already kind of on the losing end of various sorts of socioeconomic equations. And so the burden is on them to show that it's worth it, that it passes a kind of strict scrutiny uh, proportionality test. Anyway, those would be my provisional um, conclusions at this stage. Um, Jude, your, your 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 image was bouncing up, literally bouncing up and down with, on this Zoom system, which was pre pretty exciting. But you, yeah, exactly. So so please go ahead. Yeah, I, I have two, I think, final points to make. Um, I mean, it's it's difficult to know exactly what form this is going to take, and and also how it's going to affect the broader constellation of measures uh, that, that the government might be thinking about as we emerge from the worst, what will hopefully no doubt be the worst year of the COVID-19 outbreak. And I suppose one thing that would concern me is um, how the government envisages uh, ensuring continued support for businesses, for individuals, uh, both in sort of economic measures and social protection measures. Um, as, as we move forward, because, uh, you know, is there, a, is there a danger that we fall back on these um, COVID status certificates to open up society? But for how, how will that affect people who, for some one reason or another, um, aren't able to, to make use of this facility, whether as an individual or as a, as a business? Uh, the other thing I wanted to add is, is really going back to this point about international travel. Um, and, and, you know, Wayne said that, these, the, the domestic and the international uses aren't um, as distinct as we might think. But there is one thing which is very different between the global situation and the national situation, and, and that is the rollout of vaccines, with 90, about 94% of vaccines which have been administered worldwide being in high and middle-income countries and very low uh, rollout domestically in, in many low-income countries. Uh, and why is that the case? Well, we, we know that it's to do with vaccine, where vaccines are produced, you know, who's had the money to buy them and, and the lack of global solidarity and global cooperation in, in, in sharing vaccines with the populations that need them most worldwide. Um, so I would be very anxious and, and, you know, informed here by the WHO's approach, really, about rolling out some sort of international scheme, uh, because of the way things stand at the moment, I think that's that there's a lot of risks that that's going to disadvantage both individuals um, and economies from, from low-income countries, reinforcing this existing sort of discriminatory approach that we have uh, towards vaccination internationally. Um, I, I, I think we could go on for quite a lot, a, a lot longer, actually, because um, it's such an interesting issue, throwing up so many 
ethical and you know human rights concerns from privacy to discrimination i think that the we haven't even spoken about the the liberty argument which is that this would be a slip could be a slippery slope towards much wider um you know uh, gattaca style society gattaca being the film about um, sort of near dystopian film where a- anybody who had access who wanted access to the world of work needed to show their genetic profile to show they weren't at risk of a heart disease or so you know violence or you know some sort of character flaw and and i think that there is an argument that once you start once you give everyone an app from the nhs which has their vaccination status on it when the next pandemic comes along when the new hiv comes along which is a different kind of you know virus what would stop that being put on the on the vac- on the passport as well? And then why not? Whether you're a smoker or you know whatever. So I, I think there are, there are all sorts of issues. I think the one that really worries me is the access for disadvantaged groups because they are the ones who will have the least say. They are the ones that whose whose interests will be least will be the least looked after after. Um, and as we know with COVID generally, they are the ones that will most miss out and and this will just com- potentially compound it and i have a lot of interactions because of my social media work with people who are vaccine skeptics um and i do worry that i do worry about that the, 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 there's already a kind of radicalization um in in lots of different countries um over the vaccine which you i think you always see with vaccines and these kind of interventions but in the uk at the moment i think it's still quite a minority perspective you can see that with the vaccine take-up but i do worry about once you get into these what seem like quite coercive measures you might radicalize more people into thinking well i'm if they're trying to force me to do it i'm definitely not going to do it you know that's the this the you know i'm going to be a a rebel about this and, and and i just i do worry that the overall impact because after all these vaccines work are are our, our, our main focus must be on getting as many people to take them as possible. That's got to be the ultimate public health intervention. I do worry that um, vaccine passports might end up having the opposite or at least a mutual effect. Anyway, I've thrown a load of issues out. We haven't got time to deal with them, but I really appreciate you both taking the time to discuss this. And I'm sure we can, maybe when when the actual proposals come out, if they do come out, we could reconvene and, and talk about them. So thanks very much, Wayne. Thanks very much, Jude. And um, we'll speak soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much to Judith Breno de Mesquita and Wayne Martin um, for such an interesting discussion. As always, this podcast is kindly supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate course taught in London. Goldsmiths LLB programmes are qualifying law degrees, your first step towards becoming a solicitor or barrister in England and Wales. You'll develop the academic knowledge and professional skills to start a dynamic legal career. If you want to find show notes or help make this podcast sustainable by chipping in a few pounds a month, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. My name is Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. See you next time.